Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. It is a battle of the bands on this week's programme as we showcase the brand new releases from some of our favourite ensembles. We'll be hearing from three groups who, between them, run the gamut of modern indie music. From genre-bending country to the latest album from a group known for spearheading the shoegaze genre in the 80s and 90s. There's lots to get through, so let's get stuck right in. First up, Bahamas is the moniker for the Finnish-Canadian musician Afi Juvenen. Over the years and across five albums, Afi's become known for his laid-back vibes underpinned by wry lyrics and incredible musical talent. Now for his new record, Bootcut, Afi fully leans into the title. Recorded in Nashville, it's a country-inspired tour de force and one that we have very easily slipped on to repeat at Monocle on Culture HQ. I caught up with Afi in the wake of the album's release to find out a bit more about putting it all together. I'm just working on my guitar in some nightclub in some bar. I'm just a pecking out of singing and I'm hoping that you're having a good time. Or the din of the conversation, there's some musical inspiration that's just me working, working on my guitar. Afi, it is wonderful to have you back on Monocle on Culture. Just a little bit shy of the, of the t- ten year anniversary of when you first came on for your Barcalls record back in 2012. Congratulations, though, on Bootcut. It's a beautiful, beautiful, twangy, satisfying, rich, and, and wonderful thing. I'll start with first things first, Afi. How long have you been? How long did it take to scratch your itch to make a kind of more country-sounding record? Well, geez, I think it's taken most of my professional life going on 20 years. I think I've always had songs like that on all albums. There's always one or two that kind of lean in that direction. And over the pandemic, I was able to do some recording with these wonderful musicians. We did some remote recording, you know, with they were in Nashville and I was here in Nova Scotia. And uh, that just went so well. So then suddenly the wheels were turning and I thought, well, that was so fun. Wouldn't it just be amazing if I got down there to work with them in person? And that instinct was the right one. It, it was a joy to make and uh, just a beautiful experience all around. Yeah, I mean, it's such a rich sounding record. You're very close to the mic, as you often are. You've got such a lovely, rich timbre in your voice, and it suits itself so well to these kind of stripped back, I say stripped back, kind of more simply laid out songs, put it that way. But I guess they're far from simple. You, you, you tell us about some of the collaborators you worked with on this record, Bootcut, because you're in the kind of company of legends and service to other legends, I suppose, with some of these players, right? Yeah, I mean, I've always been fortunate to be surrounded by wonderful musicians. I mean, the band that comes on the road with me, they're just incredible players. And, you know, all my other albums, I feel really spoiled just as a as a singer, as a performer. It's a thrill to play with players of that caliber. Yeah, I mean, like I said, like the recordings that we did during the pandemic really kind of inspired the whole thing. And I worked with uh, Dave Rowe and this guy Russ Paul on steel guitar. And, um, you know, they they just sort of have a quiet confidence about them. I think when you get to your 70s, um, most people, it doesn't matter what profession you're doing, you, you tend to have a, you seem to know what you're doing at that point. So 
uh, I really just benefited from all that uh, energy and experience. And um, for me, whatever nerves I might have, certainly those things get quelled pretty quickly when you're when you're in a room full of players that sort of have that wealth of knowledge and experience. And, um, you know, there's no chord progression that I'm going to throw at them that they're going to be like, well, we haven't seen that before. It's like these guys have literally done it all. So it's um, it made it easy on me. I like that. I like that we uh, we we hit seventy and then it gets easy, Afi. Just just a couple more years for both of us. <laughs> I just it's watched. Be fine. Uh, I just watched a surfing documentary on Jerry Lopez, who was this legend in the seventies. He was maybe the most famous surfer. He's in his seventies now, and he's doing hydrofoil surfing, and he's snowboarding, and he's like, you know, he's been into yoga for forty years. He's just like, in some ways, he's just reaching the the start of something new and um you know so anytime you hear experiences like that whether it's surfing or music or any any sort of creative thing i think it's inspiring to someone like me who uh, i'm an artist and i hope to be an artist um you know 30 40 years from now so it's it's nice to just see people who are doing that and say wow it's you know it can be done I guess that's a confidence thing, right? It's the it's the accretion of all that knowledge, and sometimes, and, and then you just get to walk into that room and not worry about what people think of your hair or the cut of your jeans or something. I suppose, I suppose by that point you're just very happy in your own skin. But that's always something that people have admired about you and your career and and how you write songs and how you sound and present yourself as well. So I I, I guess that it was a little bit more like two sides of the same mirror kind of doing business there. But tell us, Afi, about Nashville. You said that, you know, if you ever felt ne- nervous walking into a room, I don't know whether you, d- you did with that particular group of musicians that you cut the record with this time. But what about the city of Nashville itself? It looms so large, obviously, especially in the genre of music in which you recorded this record itself. Does the city kind of empower you or does it kind of prey on your on any kind of nerves that you might have about making a new LP I mean if I'm being completely honest it's just a logistical thing where I live is not I didn't move here for any sort of professional reasons I live sort of at the far eastern edge of Canada in fact I'm closer to you than I am to Nashville for me to get to Nashville is like a, a full day affair you know but I I love my lifestyle here and it's quite quiet and calm and it suits me and my family well it just means that I have to travel to do musical things professional things and so you know it just makes sense to go to a place like Nashville they have all the musicians they have all the studios all the producers all the equipment all those types of um, it's much easier for me to just plug into what they're doing and be a part of a small cog in that wheel than it is for me to try and Um, do things where I am which you know feels like uh, the end of the earth most of the time so (laughs) yeah I don't know it's uh but you're not it's not like you're drinking from the kind of wellspring of of country music and and of America and the kind of roots Americana music as as a whole I I don't think so I I hope that uh, it's not seen as some sort of um, you know novelty recording I mean I definitely take the songwriting very seriously and and the the recording and the presentation of everything very seriously. But I sort of think of it like, you know, Ray Charles went to record in Nashville and and Neil Young recorded in Nashville and Bob Dylan recorded in Nashville. It's like, um, I'm not, uh, there's no part of me that wants to describe myself as a country artist. Um, it's just like, I love that music. I love that type of storytelling. I love the narrative quality that that genre of music sort of allows as a writer. It's incredible, right? Because you can kind of, use irony and you can use humor and you can use all these sort of literary tools that are frankly like they're a lot harder to use in pop music or or 
you know, indie as much as I don't really like that term, it's, it's, it's more difficult to employ those tools as a writer. So country music is just wide open. They're saying, it's literally saying, tell me a story, tell me a good story, take me somewhere, you know? So it's just such a fun genre to work in as a writer. And, and I've tried to write songs for other people and I've never had a ton of success, although I'm flattered that people continue to ask me to do that. But um, yeah, I just, I just, um, I have a lot of respect for Nashville and all the music that comes out of there. And, you know, I think as places like New York got really expensive, Nashville in a way benefited, right? I know a lot of friends of mine who have relocated there because it's really well um, situated in terms of touring in America. It's basically two hours from anywhere. And as I said earlier, they have all the amenities that you'd need. So it's sort of, it has a lot going for it. And now it's, it's not just country music, you know, there's amazing rock that comes from there and R&B and just hip hop, everything. There's just so much good stuff happening there. So um, it's a thrill to go down there and work anytime. And they have great coffee. They got thin crust pizza. Now they have, it's like London. They have everything. (laughs) Far bit for me, by the way, in answer to your first question, in answer to that question, Afi, to say that Bahamas would make a novelty record in no way whatsoever am I saying that. I I was just more asking you about the opportunity, some of the opportunities that country music gives you. Uh, Your your records ever since uh, Pink Strat, Afi, have had that wonderful, you've had a wonderful ability to look in the mirror with a kind of wry smile and it seems like you're on fine lyrical fettle with this with this record as well did you have to change the way that that worked or did 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 your lyrics seem to fit even snugger into the new setup that you had this time in nashville i think it's probably the latter i think it you know like i said earlier i think i've always kind of leaned in that direction um even as far back as the pink strat record on a song like hockey teeth or something like that um there's humor there. I, I've always loved those songs that have a little bit of sweet and salty at the same time. You know, if, if you only have one thing, then it, that can be a little bit too much, I find, as a listener. And so, yeah, especially when you're delivering like such a soul crushing message, as <laughs> I often seem to be doing. Um, it's nice to just have uh, leave the listener feeling a little bit uplifted somehow. And it's a little bit of a magic trick. I'd love to say that like it's purely like calculated, but you know, it's, it's, there's something intuitive there that sort of just leans in that direction. And I, I've referenced in the past, I've referenced that Willie Nelson song. um, You were always on my mind, because if you listen to the lyrics of that song, it's, it's just, it's such a painful and sad song, but it leaves you like the sound of it is, is, is in a major key. And the melody is such that you just feel inspired. You know, it's it's like chariots of fire. It just <laughs> it's like you kind of want to get up and do anything after that song. And so, how is it that a song can be both of those things, both of those extremes at the same time? So, anytime I'm working on something and it has some of those qualities, I it, it tells me that I'm in a good, I'm moving in a good direction. Somebody just like me. Afi Uvenin, aka Bahamas there. 
Now we turn our attention to a new release from British rock band Slow Dive. Everything is Alive is the fifth album from the Shoegaze Pioneers and their second since they reformed in 2014. Monocle's Charlie Filmer Court recently caught up with vocalist and guitarist Rachel Goswell to find out about the album and their influences behind it. He began by asking what listeners can expect from this new LP. I would say the album has recognisable elements of slow dive in there and then some different bits as well. There's quite a lot of electronic elements this time, so it's kind of a merging of the two. As you say, that signature slow dive sound is definitely still there, but how did you integrate these electronic and ambient elements into the album alongside that? Neil wrote the songs on this record and was originally stockpiling a load of ideas for um, a solo electronic album. I guess towards the end of 2019, we all got itchy feet having had a year off and wanted to start doing stuff again. So he, you know, presented us with various demos in various states of being. Some were like snippets of ideas and some were more fully formed songs. I mean, songs like the the opening track on the album is called Shanty. It's very electronic. It's got an arpeggiator on it. And Neil was using a, is it a Prophet 6 primarily at home when he was recording. I mean, it was all just kind of there naturally, really. When he brought the stuff to us, the rest of the band fleshed out his ideas with added guitars and maybe a few more ambient bits and bobs from Simon in there. And so would you say that the rest of the band kind of brought it back towards a more sort of guitar-based sound? And I mean, how did that work? Um, was that a democratic process? Yeah, I mean, we since we sort of came back together in 2014, we've done everything democratically. That's how we work. The best times, obviously, are when all five of us agree on a process. Sometimes it may only be three of us, but the majority of three is always a deciding factor. Kisses, for example, has probably got about 20 different versions and one of them is completely electronic with no guitars. And actually Christian and I, that was our favourite version that we wanted on the record, but then we decided, then it was the discussion around how do we play that live. Obviously we're now looking at getting like extra keyboards in to replicate things live but you know there are only five of us and we historically haven't used backing tapes for anything where a lot of bands do do that never say never is what I'd say at this point. Now the record is influenced by personal loss within the band however despite this you've said that you wanted to ensure that it remained both hopeful and positive. How did you try and kind of balance this and to kind of incorporate that into the music? I think there are tracks that obviously darker, like The Slab, is a very dark track. And I think some people, when they listen to Prayer Remembered, they also think that is a, a mournful song, but actually that's the opposite. That's a song about hope and about birth. Simon and I both lost a parent each early on in the pandemic, which is obviously very difficult, and many people have had to deal with many devastating things in their lives anyway I don't know I think you know when you lose somebody you love it's obviously very devastating but as 
time moves on, there's that kind of thing. I think with my mum, you know, her DNA, her DNA is in my bones. And as my father said to me, she lives on through me. And Simon, with his father, it's the same for him as well. And, you know, I don't know, you just get more philosophical, I think, when you lose somebody close to you. No, of course. And I mean, in in terms of making the album, you recently said something unquantifiable happens when the five of us come together in a room, which, you know, is is a really positive outlook on collaboration within the band. Do you think that's something that you've managed to kind of develop over the years? And, you know, just, just figure out how best to work with each other? Yeah, I think so. I think so. It's just a natural way of being. I mean, the word unquantifiable is there for a reason. Can't explain it. But um, we all obviously have known each other since we were teenagers and we are very relaxed in each other's company and more than ever we're more open and honest with each other than you know we would have been back in the 90s that kind of comes with I guess with getting older and and speaking your mind more. Now it's hard to do an interview with Slow Dive without mentioning shoegaze but initially you know it was a term that was perhaps used in a slightly derogatory way towards you. Now however you know it snowballed into a, a thriving genre in its own right with multiple sub-genres as well. I'd just be interested to hear what yours and the band's relationship with the term is now and whether that's something that's perhaps changed over the years. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely changed in that we are accepting of it now. And um, how could we not be, you know? I think the first time I saw shoegaze as a genre was um, back in MySpace days. And um, I set an account up and saw it as a genre and saw all these bands using it to describe their music. And I remember being quite shocked at the time and and kind of laughed initially, thinking, this is ridiculous, you know. But, you know, um, younger people took ownership of that and turned it into a positive. And um, it is interesting seeing all the branching off. I get quite confused between what dream pop is as opposed to shoegaze, I guess it's more poppy, I don't know. But, um, yeah, I, I'm trying to get my head around the the pockets that it's it's formed. But it, it is quite fascinating to see. And, um, you know, it, I guess it's lovely to have that, that community of, of people that, that love that genre of music and... Um, younger bands that are coming out and doing their own thing and taking it and interpreting it in different ways. It, it's, a, it's a very lovely thing. Slow Dive's Rachel Goswell there in conversation with Monocle's Charlie Filmer-Court. And finally on today's show, I was delighted to be paid a visit at Midori House amidst a truly mammoth international tour by Ian Devaney and Aidan Noel of Brooklyn-based band Nation of Language. Following the success of their 2020 debut album, Nation of Language have built a cult following with their intoxicating synth pop. And their new record, Strange Disciple, is no exception. And what record isn't complete without an imploring monk from the Middle Ages as the album cover? Well, we'll get into that later but first I began by asking the duo to describe the themes of this new record. (laughs) 
you know, with each of our records, they've been kind of created and recorded and released in very different conditions from one another. With the first record, we were, you know, I was working at a coffee shop and restaurants, and it was like between those shifts that we would get into the studio and record. Aiden was a nanny, and then we went to release it, and COVID happened and lockdowns, and so we weren't able to tour at all. And so for the second record, it felt like we were safe enough to travel to the studio each day and sort of isolate with just us and our producer. So you kind of get into a groove of creativity. Did it at least give you the time yeah. to be creative? Yeah. It, it without was... all the stress, with, you know, albeit with the stress of the pandemic. I do feel like it allows for a lot more of like big picture understanding mm-hmm. of what the record's going to be like without having to like retroactively sort of try to make ties between each song when you're doing it all at once like so that. So you can really, you can kind of plan the canvas of the, yeah. of the record a bit more. Yeah, because at that point we really had no idea when the world would open up. And so there was just zero pressure to meet any sort of deadline or anything because we were making a record so <laughs> much sooner. The days of the pandemic. Yeah, right? <laughs> I know, we do think back on that time fondly and I always think that's a bit messed up. Yeah, it is, it is, it is strange. But for this album, we made it in between tours and I think one way that that sort of impacted it was, you know, I think when you are making a record, it can be really easy to wonder what people want from you and find yourself trying to chase that, like, imaginary mm-hmm. specter. But I think making this record between tours, what we really felt like, especially when you can go out and, like, talk to people and hear about how they relate to the music is that it really seemed like what they wanted was for us to follow our instincts. There, It's not like we have like this one song that's like absolutely huge and like we're trying to replicate that. And it, it really feels like it's about, you know, just trying to capture something true about yourself and share it. Uh, and so that was that made making this record really kind of fun and, and easier than I think I thought it would be when going into it. Well, I think it bears itself out in the listening to it because it sounds, as I say, it's got a very... Um, people that we don't know your sound will obviously be Googling it while we speak and we'll be listening to this in the background. But there is cool synth music and electro electronic music and there is something... This feels like it's got, especially on this new record, has got such a lot of warmth to it. It's very danceable. Mm-hmm. It's... Just look at some pictures of me dancing in my house to it, guys. It's not embarrassing. It's fine. But there's there's a great kind of warmth to it. And I wondered, question for both of you, is when you're, when you're writing while you're touring or between touring, you obviously know what works with audiences. So you can kind of, you know, when you ad-lib certain parts of song, songs, as you obviously must, you've got to change it up for your own sanity, I'm sure, every night. Mm. Um, do, are those the bits that become parts of the new LP, in a way? You know, those kind of fills, those di- little breaks, those things that you extemporize on a night when it's going really well, mm. they become presumably part of the architecture and part of the, the substance of, in, of a new record. Is that is that how things are written when they're on the road? I mean, on the road... It- my brain really kind of like largely turns off from like my writing self, but he's an automaton, ladies and gentlemen. It's, it's <laughs> just it's how doing it. Feels. it. <laughs> it's like it's like when I'm in touring mode, that's like the only thing I can think about, and then when I'm in writing mode, that's the only thing I can think about, and then recording mode, and so it, it really does like sort of break your life into these strange sort of chapters that you know since we kind of just keep releasing records you just kind of really just go one into the other into the other 
But definitely, you know, the audience reaction to things can make you question things, like sort of wonder. Like yeah. when we start. Is that a good bit? No one's loving that. <laughs> well, this is, we didn't expect everyone to be vibing on this <laughs> yeah. bit, I suppose, right? Because the proof of the pudding is often in the live, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the concerts. I would say that, um, like, a positive thing that we didn't quite expect is when we re- released one of our new singles, Week in Your Light, quickly upon playing shows again, like anytime I would start the the riff that begins that song, people would start cheering. Like yeah. they were so excited that we were about to play this new song. And that is not really something that we've experienced in Boy. a while. Something so breathless I wondered in the writing process, do you guys have a mood board? Is it literally a very internalised process, writing, or do you need to have mood boards? Do you have stuff cut out on the wall? Do you have riffs of two lovely records that you just totally love that you're kind of in the perimeter sort of fence of creatively, I wonder? Or do you have to set? Or do you have to lock yourself away in a box and have nothing, <laughs> no, no outside stimulus and just write stuff, just I wonder? Monk-like. Um, like a monk, like the guy on your cover. We're gonna, oh, that's going to be my next question. Um, Perfect. <laughs> uh, we really tried to make kind of our whole apartment into a place where you can find inspiration. I especially recently, I've been trying to keep as many like poetry books of different kinds stacked around my desk because, you know, you... you got wobbly, is it a bit wobbly? One underneath <laughs> It can be, yeah. yeah. You want to surprise yourself when you're writing, like you were saying earlier, and sometimes to to look to what's... If someone else has put something in a weird way, it just it just changes the way you're seeing things. And kind of letting other people inspire you or, you know, you see a certain word that is not a word you would ever use. And so it really just kind of redirects where your brain is going. Yeah, I feel like when we were writing or when you were writing Strange Disciple, there was a lot of time you spent like during lunch when I would force you to make a quesadilla for yourself for lunch. <laughs> um, you would put on the that Beatles documentary that had just come out. And just, like, watching that would just put you right back in the mode. Oh, yeah, the the Peter Jackson one. Yeah. Get yeah. back. Yeah. And I never has just watching four people do go to work been so, been so right. uh, yeah. creatively inspiring. Yeah, yeah. it's great. So, yeah, it's great stuff. And tell me, we've mentioned monk-like focus. Your cover is, I love, it's impishly... It's very, very attractive. This has a little guy that looks like he might have been cut out of a sort of pre-perspective 13th century Italian altarpiece or something. Mm. But he's got some kind of fluoro vibes going on. He's a kind of new rave monk mm. or something. Mm-hmm. Who is he? And is he either of you guys? Is he both of you guys? Is What's happening to him? He's uh, all of us. Yeah, I think he, he in my mind... He's he is, kind of getting some sort of... He's not getting... He's a bit like an enunciation, but he's not, is he? He's getting. He's having a moment. He is having a moment. He is the strange disciple, which to me is kind of a sort of version of ourselves that lives within 
all of us, when we find ourselves in kind of like the throes of obsession or devotion to either like a person or an idea. And so when I was trying to think of the what the album could look like on the cover, I started to assemble a sort of mood board and it was all just very much like old religious imagery. And that felt sort of too serious because I felt like when when you are in the throes of that obsession or devotion, at least for myself, you know, you can find yourself acting in ways that feel so absurd to you and you're like, what am I even doing? And so I I wanted there to be a, kind of another aspect to it that was not just purely religious and um there's a painter that we know through a friend named christian little mm. and i have seen this motif in some of his paintings of this sort of mask that really just kind of drew me in and so i started talking to him and we started kind of sending ideas back and forth and then he made this painting that is the album cover which is actually hanging on the the wall in our apartment it's like a big painting nice. which is like really cool and yeah he really helped kind of take my very basic ideas and take it over the line into the next realm. My thanks to Nation of Languages Ian and Aidan for stopping by Midori House for that chat. And that is it for this week. My thanks to Charlie Phil McCourt, also to Bahamas. Bootcut is out now, as is Slow Dives, Everything is Alive. Monocle on Culture is produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Steph Chung-Goo, and Steph also edits the show. Thanks also to Sammy Swissy for his help this week. We'll be back at the same time next week, but until then, from me, Robert Bound, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.